So this morning, uh, I want to kind of uh, really look a little bit about kind of our arc over this retreat in terms of meditation. And in a way, I started uh, with the idea of what we do when we meditate and in terms of this secular dharma, something which is very practical, very present to our experience, is that we cultivate samatha and vipassana. And as I pointed out, we cultivate that in many different ways, in the many different traditions. You can do it through the mindfulness, you can do it through the questioning, you can also, I feel, do it with the, what I want to talk later on, what Stephen referred to yesterday as an immeasurable uh, loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, and equanimity. Personally, I like to call them the four important qualities. And so I'll talk a little more about this this morning. But personally, what I found uh, useful in terms of looking at Samatha and Vipassana and also looking at the special qualities is that we're not always doing it directly. So what the point is the Samatha and the Vipassana, the focusing, the concentration, the looking deeply, the questioning. And then through cultivating those two qualities, then we develop what I call creative awareness, creative mindfulness. And so here, when we talk about the mindfulness practice, we have to see that in the questioning, I mean, when I was in Korea for 10 years, nobody talked about mindfulness. Oh, shit, that's, nobody talks about it because that's not the technique. And when I came back later on, many years later, and I was trying to talk about mindfulness, and then it was very interesting, theoretically, how they view it and how they view the question. Well, of course, they think the question is better than the mindfulness. But from my own point of view, I won't go there today. From my own point of view, in terms of my experience, is that what I realized over time, doing the questioning and later on doing the mindfulness practice, is that actually you can cultivate directly or you can cultivate indirectly. But when you do samatha and vipassana, within this really caring and careful optic, then you will develop creative awareness. So in a way you can develop creative mindfulness directly through cultivating mindfulness or indirectly through questioning, for example, because that was my experience. I was, you know, after six months of, you know, sitting 10 hours a day asking, what is this, what is this? Suddenly, I became so aware, so aware of my thought, like I had never done before. So, I mean, that was not the point of the exercise, you could say, in terms of the questioning. The point of the questioning is just develop the sensation of questioning. But in terms of my experience, I became so much more mindful, just because by doing the question, I was cultivating, focusing, and questioning, looking deeply. And it was the same with the special quality. That suddenly after a few months of practicing of what is this, and again in Korea, you don't have 
of sitting meditation formal practice or cultivating loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, or equanimity. So that's not part of the sitting practice in terms of the instruction. But it's very much part of the ethics. So the four qualities are actually more in the ethic part because then they really cultivate the three training, which are ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And so, of course, you have the Bodhisattva precept, where it's really a lot about compassion. And also you have in this tradition, which come, of course, from the Chinese tradition, which is, of course, influenced by uh, Confucianism, there's uh, lots about gratitude. That's one of the big practices there. But it's not the practice you do on the cushion. It's a practice you do in relationship to others. In the same with the compassion, you don't do that on the cushion, but you do it in relationship to others, to the environment, to the, to the cow. I remember Master Cousin, you know, we go and work in the field and then tapping the cow. And I said, what do you do there? He said, oh, I follow the Bodhisattva precept. I wish for it to, in the next life, to awaken. So, I mean, lots of little things coming from the precept. I thought it was so lovely, kind of wishing for that cow to awaken. And so, in a way, but what I experienced myself after doing the questioning for a few months, that suddenly one day I found myself actually what I would call being truly compassionate. Because up to that point, I thought I was compassionate. I wanted to save the world from a young age and things of that nature. But when I experienced that moment of compassion, which was to actually think of the other more than for myself, because I used to be an anarchist in my youth. And so I was in the bank in Korea during the free season, changing money. My parents have sent me. And then the bank teller gives me too much money back. And my first reaction is, ah, one against the banking system, the capitalist system. And of course, more for me. And then I... I I stopped, but I did not stop intentionally. It was so interesting that my body stopped and my mind said to me, you can't do this because this bank teller is going to suffer. And so I retraced my step to my great surprise. I retraced my step and, you know, told him you made a mistake, you gave me too much money. And, and from then on, I've always done that. And the people often are a little kind of, shocked that I do that but it's really to me that was kind of like ah that's what compassion is about when you really see the other person not for yourself but for themselves so I was not doing any practice sitting of compassion but through the questioning through the cultivating the samatha and the vipassana then compassion arose what I would call this wise, creative compassion. And so, in a way, that's why what I'm saying here is that sometimes you will practice directly mindfulness, and sometimes you will practice mindfulness indirectly. And then sometimes you will practice 
one of the special quality directly, like you find in the Theravada tradition. And then sometime in other tradition, you will cultivate it indirectly. So I think in a way to see that, yes, we can cultivate it with a special quality, but it is not obliged. Because what is very interesting with this uh, practice of the four special qualities, and generally what people are really aware of is metta. I think some of you might have heard about metta meditation, M-E-T-T-A. And it means loving kindness, friendliness. Some people even translate it as love, but I mean, there is again a range of translation there. But it's really kind of a kind, caring attitude, really wishing well for others. But often what is taught with what is called meta-meditation is what I would call the shortcut of the immeasurable. Because then generally you have sentences and generally the sentences are, may I, you be happy, so that's loving kindness, may I, you be at peace, that actually more equanimity, and then may I, you be free from suffering, and that's more the compassion one. So in a way, kind of in this, kind of what I would say more modern uh, meta-meditation, you know, you kind of all the three together. When actually, if you look at the text, then you really, what is interesting with the immeasurable, with the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, is that actually the Buddha saw them as antidote. So, of course, he wants them to cultivate them for ourselves, but actually he sees them as antidote. So he sees loving kindness as an antidote to harm. He sees compassion as an antidote to cruelty. He sees Mudita, the one I want to look at more today, joy, appreciative joy, altruistic joy, as an antidote to envy. And he sees equanimity as an antidote to agitation. So, I mean, if you look at the text, they have different antidotes, but that's kind of like, you know, generally kind of the, the idea. I mean, loving kindness is also seen as an antidote to fear. So that kind of when the Buddha first taught loving kindness in the commentary, it says it was because the monks were so afraid. And he said, but look, I mean, you know, everything around you is peaceful. Nobody is attacking you. Kind of just see the goodness in people. I mean, in a way, loving kindness is really seeing the goodness in people and giving time and space. It's a certain kind of generosity. In a way, you could nearly say loving kindness is giving the benefit of the doubt. I mean, of course, what we have to be very careful with the immeasurable, the qualities, is that it's really seen like as an antidote, but it's really seen as an intention. It's not so much seen as developing a state, creating a state, especially not as creating a permanent state. We really have to be careful there. I must be compassionate. I must be kind, no matter what. No, 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 no. The four immeasurable are really within the ethical framework. So that because uh, 
often with this practice, you kind of look at yourself, then you direct the joy, for example, to others. And then we have this little difficult category of people you have a little difficulty with. And then what is interesting with that category is that people generally, instead of thinking of somebody they have a little difficulty with, which then can be worked in meditation, they think about the worst person in the universe. So then generally they'll think about Hitler and they think about Stalin or I won't mention modern people right now. So that's not the idea. That's not the idea. This doesn't mean that all the time I need to have compassion, all the time I need to be kind. At the same time, we have to be careful not to use it as a way to accuse each other. A long time I lived in communities and I can remember, you know, Buddhist community, meditation community, and then we would accuse each other. You are not mindful. You are not compassionate. It's interesting. If you use the good quality as a kind of, you know, accusing somebody. So no, it's really an intention. This is really important. It's really cultivating an intention. So it's something which is within us already, but we want to strengthen it. We want in a way to give it more power because of course it will be of benefit to ourselves. It will be of benefit to others. This is what we kind of see these immeasurable, these qualities as intention, but also what is interesting with the qualities is that they're not necessarily going to work on contact because contact is like, we don't know what's going to happen any given moment, but they really actually help with the feeling tone. And they really also help with the perception. So really kind of, that's where the immeasurable are really going to work is on tonality and also in terms of perception. And for example, loving kindness, I think it really helps it to see the humanity. Because in a way, our difficulty is that uh, when we meet somebody, generally we meet the person in the past. This is very interesting. In the 108 Vedana, the Buddha talks about the Vedana, the tonality connected to the past, connected to the present, connected to the future. I think this is an amazing idea. But often that's the way we meet people. I mean, sometimes, of course, we meet them with, ah, this is going to be great to meet this person. So in a way, pleasant future feeling or attributed pleasant feeling. And then if you meet the person, it doesn't go well. Whew, there is kind of the expectation go down. Or we go to meet somebody with the tonality of the past, unpleasant. So in a way, you go to meet the person and you bring already the tonality from the past. Oh, it was a terrible person and it's going to be terrible. I mean, of course, some people you really have to be careful, but who knows? So in a way, I had a friend that uh, she was an actress and she used to work with a director and it was very difficult. And then what she used to do to make it easier for her was that she would, whenever she would go and work for him, with him, she would do 30 minutes of meta meditation, loving kindness. And then when she arrived, she could arrive, okay, I'm going to see the human being in this moment. 
and then she would get upset. It would take about an hour for her to get upset. So there was a little more kind of friendliness for a little while. And then it was kind of a little so agitated and stressy that then kind of it was a little difficult. So, you know, it's kind of interesting kind of to play around. Personally, I think the tonality are totally connected with the immeasurable. I think loving kindness, joy are connected with pleasant feeling too. Equanimity is connected with neither feeling too. And I would say personally, that's my idea, not because uh, Venerable Analayo does not agree with me there. Personally, I think compassion is going to be associated with unpleasant tonality. And I think that's why it is difficult. And that's why we need to bring equanimity to the compassion in order to have this creative, wise compassion. So now let's look at Mudita. And so if, uh, I don't know if uh, Tony could uh, put again uh, what I put at the beginning. Uh, so if you copy and paste, and then everyone can see what I put at the beginning, because yesterday we were not sure if everybody could. And so Mudita. So this is... Uh, generally in the list, the third of the immeasurable of the special quality. So M-U-D-I-T-A. And you could translate it in two different aspects of it. Personally, I would look at appreciative joy. So part of mudita is appreciation. And the other part of mudita is altruistic joy. And here, I mean, the Buddha thought mudita was really important. So we really kind of, in a way, counteract a little the idea that we just have to be mindful, mindful of unpleasant feeling tone, mindful of suffering. No, no, no. We need to be actually equally mindful of pleasant and unpleasant. And I think kind of mudita is such a great quality to cultivate. I mean, I had a friend, she decided to do a month long practice of mudita and at the beginning she felt really like lots of unpleasant feeling tone because of all the things she did not have and everybody else had and this and that and then at the end of it she kind of was so joyful because she it helped us to helped her to realize how much she already had in her life so anyway i think personally i see mudita as an antidote to envy, but even more than to the comparing mind, especially the comparing mind, which is, oh, I don't have this. And then uh, Mudita, you can have the regular phrases. Yes, Mudita is a gratefulness practice. So often, sometimes it's uh, referred to with gratitude. And so in a way, but also altruistic joy. And so it's very much about also rejoicing with others. We have to see that the immeasurable are not just quality for ourselves, but they're really quality to cultivate with others in terms of helping us to see others as themselves. This to me is an important part of that practice. And you will see how we do it in the guided meditation. So you have the regular phrases, which 
are okay, may your good fortune continue, thing of that nature. But personally, I thought we could bring a little more vipassana within it. Because I think with this quality, again, we can, the sentences, we focus, and then we bring a little vipassana within it. I think it's also part of that practice. So this is the phrases I would suggest. So you have a verb, you have a pronoun, and then you have an object. And then, of course, you have to translate it in your own language. And I'm very aware that for the German speaker, rejoicing is not easy. Because in all different countries I go, I have the, these uh, sentences translated. And it's interesting that sometimes you can find the correspondent and then sometimes with rejoicing in German, it's kind of a little kind of difficult. So you could just have enjoying possibly. So here they are. First one, appreciating my, this, your efforts. So here, uh, what I'm trying to do in terms of the pronoun is, does it make a difference? So again, exploring. If I say my, does it more like self-income Or is it just my because it's me and not somebody else? So we can play around with that. Or if I say this, does it become a little kind of more impersonal? And your, because it's also rejoicing in appreciating others. And why did I put effort? Because to me, this is something we really need to cultivate, that we have a tendency to equate effort with effect, which means that if you don't have the effect, then I have not made the effort. But personally, I think we try the best we can considering the situation. And so I think it's so important to appreciate our effort. Of course, we can learn from the effect, but really to appreciate our efforts, I think is so, so very important. And also our efforts in the past. Because again, back to tonality in the past, sometimes we find ourselves sitting in meditation thinking, ah, oh, but this was terrible, and if only I had done that, and this and that. And in a way, we kind of try to re engineer the path. Actually, we can't. But I think what we can see with Mudita is that at that time, we did the best we could considering the circumstances. Now, of course, we would do different. But now is a different time, different condition. And then there is appreciating your effort. Because unfortunately, we do the same with others, that we think, well, they try, but no effect. And then we generally say, try harder. You did not try hard enough. And that I think we have to be very careful of. That sometimes someone will try so hard, but actually the condition will be such that they will not achieve what they're trying to do. And so I think it's kind of really, to me, this is one of the, so actually it's kind of nearly where you connect mudita with karuna compassion. Appreciating someone's effort, I think actually is a compassionate act, is a generous act, really seeing the effort. And especially 
uh, if uh, people are with um, have or are with people who have depression, and then there is this wonderful person I follow on Twitter, Charlotte, who has a blog called Purple Persuasion. And she became known because she had the 10 thing you should not say to somebody who is depressed. And the first one was try harder. And because, I mean, they don't have the same condition at all. Just getting up out of bed might be really so difficult. So really appreciating people's effort. Then there is rejoicing in my, this, your happiness, understanding, then success. Some people have a little kind of trigger here. But success is not success in terms of killing somebody again within the city code framework, but success in their potential, in the fact they're good at gardening, they're good at writing, they're good at uh, cooking or whatever it is. And this is in a way, can I rejoice in my own understanding? Can it be enough, my own happiness, understanding, success without comparing it with others. This is often what the writer do a lot, is a kind of, you know, go on Amazon and look kind of the ranking, you know, oh, but they have more. And then because they have more, you feel you have less. So to really be careful with that. Also mean that we can have our own understanding to be careful to put certain people, oh, they really know everything, I don't know anything. We, each of us, have our own understanding. And also, I mean, this is also back to uh, uh, kind of like uh, on, I don't know if people here are much on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, but, you know, kind of, you know, how many followers one has or how many likes one has. That's so interesting in terms of that one. So in a way, rejoicing, in your amount of followers and rejoicing in the other people's amount of followers or likes. Uh, and then with this one, what is interesting is look at when somebody comes to you with good news. I mean, if somebody comes to you with the good news, you could just rejoice and then you will be double pleasant feeling toward the person and your own. But when somebody comes with a good news, what do we do? We say, oh, but what about this? What about that? But if this happened, and if that happened, and they come with this big kind of happiness, and then oh, you kind of, you know, kind of prick the balloon. And long ago, I did this to a friend. She came with a really good news. And I said, but what about it? And then she said to me, why are you doing this? And I thought, why am I doing this? This is a weird thing to do. Somebody comes to you with a good news and you deflate it. And what's the point? They're happy now. We don't know what will happen later. And you will be there for them later. But right now they're happy. Can you rejoice with them? And then the last one is being grateful for my, this, your existence or potential. And this is really in a way to connect with the breath. So we took quite a lot of the breath and this morning Sophie did a lovely meditation with the breath. And to me, it's kind of remind me a little bit of um, kind of those great teachers saying, you know, your breath, you don't know why you're born, but you're born with the breath. What do you do with it? 
how you're going to lead your life. So to me, this being grateful for my existence is a little bit like being grateful for this breath, but also being grateful for your breath. So here you can again use existence or breath or body or life, being grateful for life. So it's kind of really in a way coming back to the basics of this organism in this moment. And really having gratitude for that and in a way for its potential. But sometimes, of course, our existence might be very difficult, so we might not be so grateful for it. But in a way, we can be grateful for the potential, the potential to change, the potential to grow, to develop. So in a way, you can, if you want, use those phrases or you can use other words, other phrases, but that's a little bit the idea. And so generally the idea that you start with yourself and then you go to people on Zoom with us and then we extend to everything that is alive, the tree, the bird, everything, the cows. And then we go to the people we have little we really like people we have little neutral and people we have a little difficulty with. So anyway, that's what I want to, to show you in terms of the meditation. But what I will also show you in terms of the meditation is that you can do it in three different ways. You can either recite the sentences silently inward, if it works for you. Some people, it really does not work at all. Then it's better to connect to the experience, or you can connect to the qualities. But then I will show that during the practice. So to see that even with the immeasurable, we don't have to do just one thing. We just don't have to just repeat the sentences if that does not work for us. We can also connect to experience, connect to the quality. So just to see again here, we can have choices. What is it that works for me? And we can explore that together. So that's what I wanted to say for now. And then maybe we can just stand for a few seconds, stretch a little, and then I'll do the guided meditation. So if we can find a comfortable posture, Our back is straight, upright, but also relaxed. The shoulder relaxed. Feeling really stable and open. And then gently bringing ourselves to mind. And really looking beyond what we might like or dislike about ourselves and reaching out to the human being with alive, with breathing. And bringing this quality of appreciative joy. Appreciating my effort. Rejoicing in this understanding, being grateful 
for my existence. Appreciating these efforts, rejoicing in my understanding, being grateful for this existence. So gently, silently, we can repeat these sentences, just one or all three, however it works for us. Or we could connect to experience. What is it I can appreciate right now? What is it I can rejoice in right now? What is it I can be grateful for right now?
who can connect to the quality. How does it feel to appreciate something? How does it feel to rejoice? How does it feel gratitude? by expanding our caring and careful awareness to people in this Zoom call. Some people we know, some people we got to know through the question, through the image, and looking beyond what we might like or dislike about them and reaching out to the human being with alive, with breathing, appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your understanding, being grateful for your existence, appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your happiness, being grateful for your potential,
like spending, to people we like who support us. But even then, looking beyond that, reaching out to the human being who is alive, who is breathing, appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your happiness, being grateful for your existence. Now expanding our awareness to people we feel a little neutral, indifferent. But looking beyond that, seeing that they have a history, that like ourselves, they breathe, they suffer. Appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your happiness, being grateful for your existence. When I think of this category often, I think of all the people we have discovered are so essential during this corona time. So much gratitude, appreciation for them.
Now bringing our awareness to people we have a little difficulty with, but trying to look beyond what is difficult and reaching out to the human being who is alive, who is breathing, who is suffering, just like ourselves. Appreciating your efforts, rejoicing in your understanding, being grateful for your potential. Now, coming back to ourselves and bringing our attention on the breath. Being aware of the breath, can we also appreciate, rejoice, be grateful for the breath? And we also be appreciative, rejoicing, grateful to all the people we share this air with. The trees, the animals, all of life on this planet. Now turning toward the body, 
being aware of this body, this organism, right now? Can we appreciate, rejoice, be grateful for it? Can we also appreciate, rejoice, be grateful towards the people who help us to maintain this body, to survive through the food we eat, the water we drink, the clothes we wear, the house we live in, the medicine we take. Turning toward our mind, our mind heart, which has thought, which has emotion. Can we appreciate, rejoice, be grateful that we can have thought, that we can have emotion, that we can share with others? that we can also be open to other thoughts, other's emotions.
now we can look at the comment and we can uh, have a little discussion. So is mudita gratefulness practice? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It's one way to cultivate gratitude. In Korea, they don't do it that way, but they have a great way to cultivate gratitude. I was so impressed in Korea by, uh, it took me some time to understand gratitude there. Uh, and for them, it's kind of, for the Buddhist in Korea, it's totally connected to conditionality. And it's totally connected to being aware of all the condition that makes it that you're alive within a society, within a culture. Then you have this gratitude to the parent, gratitude to the society, gratitude to the culture. And in a way, uh, I came as a very individualistic French person and I learned a lot in Korea about gratitude and really seeing the condition uh, which allow you to live and being grateful for that, but also as a group, what contribute to the group harmony to the group development. That also was a great learning for me. So indeed, it's a gratitude practice. Uh, thank you. Uh, could you please say a few words about equanimity? How out of the four immeasurable, I find it the most elusive one. Actually, yesterday, ah, Stephen found, because Stephen has been, uh, because it's sad. At one level, I think Corona is sad because lots of people have died and are suffering. And at another level, for a lot of people, it had been such an opportunity in a way uh, to change their life or to do different things in their life. And for Stephen, it's really been the opportunity to write without traveling here and there. And so yesterday, because I was, I mean, I am in his office listening to him giving the talk because I don't want to be on the bandwidth. So that's what I'm down there. And he talked about equanimity and that passage. To me, it's so interesting. I'm so interested in equanimity. And equanimity is connected to the so interesting neither. I mean, I, need, I would need a lot of time to talk about this. But what was interesting yesterday is that we have a tendency, and I think this is a, a problem in meditation, in Buddhism, in spiritual circle, to equate equanimity with nothing is going to bother me anymore. So that at one point, I am supposed to get on my little kind of equanimity cloud. So I'm in my little nice fluffy equanimity cloud above everything and nothing touches me. And oh, you're suffering down there, too bad, too bad. I am in this nice cloud for myself. That's not equanimity, really, really, really. I think we have to be really careful to think that equanimity means that there is no grasping whatsoever, no tonality whatsoever. I mean, if there is nothing, what's the point? I mean, of course you could have nothingness. I mean, do we live and love in nothingness? I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I think that's a strange concept. So equanimity is actually seen in the text as mundane equanimity, which is about, I don't care, it's not bothering me. But it's also seen as wise equanimity, which is coming from inside. 
into the characteristic which is imbued with compassion. And what was interesting about yesterday is even finding that text in which equanimity is compared to gold. And that they were saying, you know, like the phrase that everybody thinks is about the special mind being luminous and everything. This is not about the kind of a metaphysical luminous mind, which is there all the time we have to get. It's actually the luminosity of a mind which is equanimous. So actually equanimity is not gray. Equanimity is not unfeeling, it's not indifference. Equanimity is actually a bright quality which is imbued with stability, with balance, with groundedness, and now with luminosity. So that I like. I think this is to investigate. I want that passage. So this is my new kind of <laughs> grasping. I want to work on this passage. So then we'll see. We'll have maybe more to say about equanimity. Love the generosity of this practice and the seeing of you, ours and your potential in everyone. Helped me so much in being with my son who has been suffering addiction. Really helps not to label him as an addict, but to see through that to his full potential and respond to that. Indeed, of course, some people have difficulty. But I think uh, it seems to me addiction. You see, generally I connect also, but we did not have the time, tonality with ethics. And I would bring in that the tonality of pleasantness. And the tonality of pleasantness being connected to addiction. And to see that, of course, some people are addicted because they're addicted to the pleasant tonality given by the drug. But I would say a lot of the time, people are alcoholic or addicted because they're suffering. And the thing itself, you know, we bring a pleasant feeling to. It's like this, one time I read this young woman saying that when she was 15, she drank alcohol. And that moment, it made her experience such a pleasant feeling tone of not being shy and fearful or all that gone that she fell in love with alcohol. And it took her like 15 years until she was blacking out all the time to think maybe this is too dangerous. I have to stop. But she was still in love in a way with alcohol, but not so much alcohol, but I would say in love with that first time when one felt, ah, relieved. So I think, yes, to see, yes, the person has some difficulty, but they, these difficulties are generally embedded in condition, and also the person also has a potential. So you said that the four immeasurable are quality to be cultivated with others. In the Vedic tradition, the Brahma Viharas were sensation, experienced by the Atman in its reunion with Brahman. Did the Buddha give this a new meaning by redefining them a quality of our relationship with other that we need to cultivate here and now? Exactly, totally that. That's one of the things that the Buddha did again and again. So what the Buddha did is what some people do nowadays, but they do it like in a harmful way nowadays 
is that you take a concept used in a certain tradition and then you use the same word, but then you give it a different meaning. And that's exactly what he did with the Brahma Vihara. That you totally describe it perfectly. That's what the Buddha did. And often that's what he did. Like he took a concept people were familiar with and then he gave it a different idea. And the idea is indeed something we can cultivate here and now in our relationship. Indeed, that's often he made that move. And that's why you find similar words in a way in the Hindu tradition than in the Buddhist tradition. I'm a champion in seeing shortcomings rather than effort. Would mudita mindfulness be enough to let go of the potential that I see but their lack of effort prevent of achieving? I think, of course, some people have a tendency to be lazy. Some people are. And there is a wonderful text in the... I forgot the name right now, the Sigavalavada Sutta, in which the people talk about laziness. And it's wonderful the way he describes it. Even then, 2,500 years ago, you had people who did not kind of, would not get up in the morning or too lazy to work or to do this or to that. It's a wonderful text. But apart from people who possibly, for whatever reason, are lazy, I think what we have to be very careful is that we don't have the same capacity in different conditions. So that you think, oh, but for example, I did it, they should be able to do it. Not necessarily so. I mean, I can cook very easily, but Stephen can cook, but not as easily as me, because he can philosophize, I cannot philosophize. So you could say, try harder, read more the philosophy book. And I start to read a page and I'm like, you know, and uh, you put him with different ingredients in the kitchen and he might be, so, you know, I could force myself to read the book and he can kind of, you know, he managed quite well now to cook with different ingredients. But in a way, we don't come with the same condition to it. So we have to be a little careful with that, that, just if there was more effort, they would be more achieving. To me, that's what I would be interested in. Can they achieve that? Because possibly they might not put effort in achieving this, but they might be putting effort in achieving that. And often with children or young adults, that's what you see. You know, like you tell them to do something they're really not into. Uh, they don't put much effort, but give them something they really love, and then whew, all the effort go into it. So I think there is so many different things here to look at in terms of conditionality, in terms of effort and achievement. I think we have to be careful to equate effort with achievement, not necessarily, not necessarily depend on so many different conditions. Do you have an acronym, Aid Memoir, similar to Stephen Elsa? Sorry, I don't, but I'll try to find one, unless one of you find one. Personally, Mudita is good enough for me. Uh, uh, this was a very powerful formulation and actually allowed me to feel appreciation for someone with whom 
I have been experiencing a little difficulty on a creative project. I was redirected to appreciating their creativity, their contribution, very powerful in also stopping the criticism of my own busy mind. Again, redirecting to appreciating its creative potential. To me, Mudita is really about being creative, really about, it's again, being generous, being generous. Kind of, we have such a tendency, they're like this, they're like that, I'm like this, I'm like that. Of course, you might have a tendency to be like that, but if we allow ourselves some space, some time, then generally more creativity can emerge. And the question is, it is, am I going to go the unpleasant feeling tone way? This is a question. Some people work with unpleasant feeling tone. You give them unpleasant feeling tone and they really are good with achievement. But I would say most of the people don't work <laughs> with unpleasant feeling tone. A lot of people work better with pleasant feeling tone. So in a way, if we need to criticize, I think we have to be very careful. Because it's going to bring unpleasant feeling tone and then the person generally tightens fear, anxiety. And then generally, if we can go more toward the pleasant feeling tone, and then there is more possibility of creativity. So I think there is a little thing there of playing around it, not avoiding unpleasant. And, you know, if one has to kind of discuss something and look at different points, but how do we do it is really uh, a bit of the point too. Strangely, this week I've become more confused with the difference between Samatha and Vipassana. I'm not sure when I'm practicing each. Could you say something about this, please? Because this is a difficulty with language. In language, I'm kind of saying, there is samatha, focusing, concentration. There is vipassana, there is looking deeply. But actually, the two are together. But it's just for the sake of language, I'm trying to say part of the meditation has to do with concentration, focusing, coming back, coming back. And part of the meditation has to do with looking deeply, questioning, inquiry. But we need both to do both, actually. So I think I would not generally, unless you really kind of... My teacher had some really good stuff to say about this, actually. I mean, also from the, it's from the tradition of questioning. They really look at the two aspects of brightness and calmness. And so here, what is interesting is, what is it that bring brightness? What is it that bring calmness? Is there too much calmness? Do I need to bring a bit of brightness? Is there too much brightness, which can lead to ex excitation, and then I need to bring calmness? I think instead of kind of, oh, this is specific focus, there is specific looking deeply, I think it's kind of more kind of a, a certain way we pay attention with a certain alertness. So the only thing we have to be careful is equate meditation with just focusing and just being calm. Often, I think that's what happened a little bit because it's a little more obvious. But apart from that, I think the two generally merge together. And unless you are in a practice, I mean, there are some schools of meditation who say, oh, now first you do this, now you do that. 
But if you look in the text, the, the, the Buddha thought, you know, you could do the two together, the two separate, and the two could be the end of each other. There is an interesting text on Samatha and Vipassana. I'll try to find it back and I'll put it on the web page. I had really real difficulty being grateful for my existence. But if I change the phrase, may I be grateful for my existence, I found it much easier because it expressed an aspiration rather than something I have to feel right now. Exactly. The point here, Neil, is really a very important point, fear. To really remember this is an intention, this is an aspiration. It doesn't mean that right here, right now, you're going to feel joy or you're going to feel grateful for your existence or you're going to feel loving kindness or equanimity. You intend toward it, you aspire to it, but according to condition, you might experience it or not. So exactly. We have to be careful to think that we will feel it in the moment. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we really don't. And so, yes, you can put may. Of course, that's very creative. I found the word gratitude feels heavy. You should be grateful for. And yet I feel appreciative joy, feel enlivening. And I can practice appreciative joy of this cup of tea, the roof over my head. Indeed, I think gratitude is more loaded. I totally agree. That's why I go from appreciation, which generally is a little more, you could say, neutral, then rejoicing, which is a little more, kind of a little more intensity, and then gratitude. I have so many associations with different religion, with different concepts and everything. So, yeah, you know, I think you can start with appreciation. And in a way, only use gratitude if the word speaks to you. Because if the word feels heavy, then I would really leave it to, to the side. Uh, thank you. I, uh, I really love your teaching, Martin, your approach to the complexity of being a human being, our quality and struggle is really so helpful, especially when I am hard on myself for falling short. Yes, personally, I think we have to be careful that in a way we want to do well. We really want to try the best we can, but it's generally the best we can within the condition. And so sometimes I'm nearly kind of think it's better to say, what is the least I can do right now? Because often we kind of think, what is the most I can do right now? And the most generally is a little tricky, is what I call the heroic complex. I want the most, the best. I mean, sometimes we can, sometimes not. But what is the least? Because sometimes if we think the most, then we don't try. Because it's too much. I can't do this. But what is the least I can do? And then if we feel we fall short, we can learn from that. But also, is it achievable? We have to be careful. Is it abstract? How is it possible? You know, so it's kind of like, kind of, is it kind of experiential? Or is it kind of a little, kind of some thing that society tell me I must achieve 
or some parents say I must do, or myself I think by now I should have done this. Who knows? Who knows? But what is the best I can do considering the condition? What is the least I can do considering the condition? I really appreciated that meditation and the different ways of approaching metta practice. Earlier you mentioned the Buddha saying that mudita is an antidote to envy. Does this mean that an absence of meditation joy is an indication that we are experiencing envy in some way, even if we're not aware of it? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I think this is really uh, not a preemptive. I mean, it might diminish envy, so it might diminish envy, but it's not saying we are envious all the time. I think what we are here, we have to be really careful of this point. That actually, somebody um, at the beginning asked Stephen about original sin. And in a way, you don't have that concept uh, in Buddhism. And personally, I'm very grateful we don't have that concept in Buddhism. Because in Buddhism, you really look in terms of condition. And you really look into the fact that things are impermanent. Doesn't mean they change all the time, but it means that things are impermanent. So anything is generally never going to last forever, which means we can be envious, but it doesn't mean we are envious all the time. We can be loving, but it doesn't mean we're going to be loving all the time to the same degree. So the fact in terms of appreciative joy, we have to be careful to think, oh, I must feel a certain like plus four pleasant tonality and then I am in appreciative joy. And if I don't feel plus four pleasant feeling tone, then I don't have it. Not at all. I think appreciative joy is from 0.5 to me. I feel so much appreciation and gratitude. The house, my life. Of course, Corona is uh, sad and things. So there is also sad thing. It's not just joy. But To me, envy is when you feel it. How does it feel? Mm, I'm missing something. So in a way, if it's not there, it's not there. And if it's there, how does it manifest? Uh, Having spent 18 months practicing with religious Buddhist group, I am shifting into a secular Buddhist practice with which I feel far more comfortable. However, something I really miss is a sense of communality of God through chanting and which feel missing when I meditate in a group. Can you suggest any equivalent to thinking, chanting, ecstatic communal activity within secular practice that are not meditation? I mean, chanting is fine, singing is fine. Uh, again, is what uh, brings joy to you. And then... The, it's kind of like, is all our eggs going to be in the same basket? Like in a way, if you go to a religious group, you have a really communal feeling, chanting, doing things together. But at the same time, some of maybe the belief are a little <coughs> don't, not appropriate for you. 
So then if you go to a more secular gamma group and generally they will be sitting together, so I mean, you could always suggest let's do some chanting or you can find the chanting somewhere else. You know, you can be part of a choir or you can chant on your own or you can chant because that's something that people like to do is to chant the sutta. Some people really like to do that. I mean, you could have a Zoom group. Who knows? You could have nowadays, you can do a lot of things with Zoom. You could have a Zoom, small secular Dharma group of people into chanting. And then you could chant the sutta together and do things like that. So I think it's kind of, do I do it in a different way, like in a choir practice? Or do I go and chant in nature and reverberate with nature? Or do I create a chanting secular Dharma group on Zoom? And then I share it with them. So I think there are many different possibilities of how nowadays to create community and how to bring uh, what, how, how it brings us together. Is it eating together, studying together, chanting together? Like there is a group, in, like with the Body College, you have some groups studying together. And we've also the secular Dharma group in New Zealand. They also have groups studying together. And I'm fairly sure you could find some secular Dharma people who are into chanting, if you kind of uh, put it somewhere. Because there is, yeah, there is a new group with uh, Ramsey about art and uh, secular Dharma. So that could be one thing to bring in. You did not include our practice in relationship to someone with whom we have very considerable difficulty whose effort result in considerable inconvenience to me and my family. How do I welcome and congratulate that, even in terms of being, can equanimity help with this? Okay, this is very good point. That this is an intention and it is really according to condition. So of course, we're not asking you to congratulate somebody who gives you difficulty. So here, you don't bring appreciative joy to the difficulty they bring to you. But yes, as you said, you bring equanimity or not even any of the qualities and more creative awareness. This person is difficult. How can we deal with this person? What is the least we can do in this situation? So we have to see that the immeasurable are within a framework of many other different tools that we cannot think of using the four immeasurable all the time in the same condition to the same people. Sometimes it's not possible. But of course, the equanimity will help us possibly to bring groundedness, to bring stability so that then we can have enough stability and groundedness so we can find a way through dealing with this person. Uh, thank you, Martin. Love the meditation. Is it interesting that you mentioned about the Korean way of practicing gratitude? I find that in this meditation, I naturally start to see the connection between condition. When you mention gratitude for the breath, I felt gratitude for the plant that provide oxygen and the way that this planet evolved to support life. Exactly, exactly. I have been trying to work a bit this week and I'm struggling with not grasping or even ruminating. 
when you have to think about something. In coming back to broad awareness, my thought tend to be random and jump to other subjects. How do you prevent grasping without just being distracted from the thing you need to think about? Yeah, again, I think when you have to think about something, think about something. I think, you know, in the meditation, at time you'll have something on your mind. And then you can do what I call meditative creative thinking. You just think about that and nothing else. And then once you've thought about that for 10, 20 or 30 minutes, leave it for the day. And then tomorrow, again, 10, 20, 30 minutes, think about it seriously. But if you are kind of working on some project, uh, you have to think about it. So, of course, in the meditation, I would say think a little about it, then leave it. Think a little about it, then leave it. Sometimes we think of thinking too much about something actually stress us. But we do need to think about what we're planning and etc. So it's kind of like you can still think about that and then see it, ah, now I can come back. And then, yes, uh, often we are in a little of a vague stage, but is it also interesting to see what's a vague state? But we don't need to necessarily always come back to the breath and then having to deal with the vague state if we need to think about something or plan something. Uh, Sophie, I think I'll have to stop. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.